There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. His, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, Lord. We come humbly before you at this time, Lord, to search the scriptures so that we might know you better, Lord, and to glorify you forever, Lord. Father, we ask that the speaker be hidden behind the brilliance of the truth of your word, Lord, that the image of Christ would be the image seared into our minds and that he would be the sole object of our affections. It's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. So you'll remember if you were here last time, we started a series in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is focused on delivering to the reader the message of Christ's divinity. In the early church, there was a heresy that said Christ was merely a man, born like any man is born, and that he was not God, pre-existing creation. And so John gets right to the point by starting at the beginning and says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. So we have light in the beginning. We've got witness which is the act of beholding by means of light. We have reception, which is when you are compelled by grace to accept this light and this witness as true. And then you have the glory, the glory of God, which is that light. 
then we move on and we hear that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this is a different John from the John who's writing the gospel. This is John the Baptist. And in order to understand John the Baptist, I think the best place we could turn for a quick summary of his ministry is in Matthew chapter 3. And we're just going to read through this. It's very straightforward, but it'll give you an idea of who, uh, who John is and what his relationship was like with Christ. Um, he was actually a cousin of Christ's. But that's kind of actually, I mean, it's relevant in the sense that it, there are aspects of their familial relationship that come up in the story. In other words, when, when, when John meets uh, Christ, when, while he's still in the womb, he leaps for joy. When he's just a baby in the womb, and it's a beautiful thing to think about, uh, cousins meeting each other before they're even born and just leaping for joy. But this is chapter 3 of, uh, of Matthew. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. So John is going out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the religious elites of their time, different classes of religious elites. You could call them like the Presbyterians and the Anglicans. He says to them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee of the wrath, from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So he meets, this is John the Baptist speaking to the religious elites of his time. The people who concoct the laws that men are meant to follow. And if they don't follow, they'll be socially ostracized, punished in the civil realm. Christ was crucified for defying these people. And he says to them, you're a generation of vipers, a generation of snakes, of venomous snakes. That's how John the Baptist, the cousin of our Lord, who made the way straight for our Lord, dealt with the legalist religious leaders of his time. And he says to them, bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. Bring forth something. It's in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis. There's Cain and there's Abel. And Cain is a farmer. And Cain gives up some of his food, he sacrifices some of what he farms out of the ground to God. And Abel is a shepherd, and he gives some of his sheep to God as a sacrifice to God. And God loves Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable unto God. And so what John is saying here is that you religious leaders, you Pharisees and Sadducees, what you've been bringing forth 
is not acceptable unto God, bring forth instead a sacrifice that is acceptable unto God, which is repentance, which is a turning away from our sins. And think not to say within ourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. It says in Job, Job, that we will be in league with the stones of the field. And Paul, John, or, yeah, John the Baptist is saying here that he could, God, if God wanted to, he could raise up stones that could be children of him, unto him. There's no, there's nothing that we bring to this equation that makes us children of God. It is what God does that brings up, raises up children unto Abraham. And so the Pharisees are thinking, well, I'm of this family line. I'm a son of Abraham. And so I am going to be blessed by God. And if I just obey, I'll be all set. And John the Baptist is saying, you may be abiding by the letter of the law, but you're not abiding by the spirit of the law, which is the central thing. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than me, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The image here, I think, is of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the three Jewish brothers of Daniel, who are thrown into the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. But they're not burnt up. They're not burnt up. They are seen in the furnace with a fourth person, and that fourth person is Christ in the flesh, protecting them from the heat of the fire. And so, as the Christian believer... We are burned. We're burned with conviction. We're burned by the hot displeasure of the Lord. The Christian is convicted in his own heart, not by his some sort of independent source of moral agency, but by God's grace and mercy. And that's how we know what we're doing is wrong. It says in Romans 1 that the creature knows the creator, but suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. It's only by the mercy of God that we repent from this unbelief. The father of the crippled son says to Christ, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. How comest thou to me? I'm not worthy to baptize you, Lord. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus answers to John and says, suffer it to be so now. Do this now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It becomes us. What does it mean to it becomes us? That's such an interesting phrase. We don't use it enough today. Someone once said it, uh, I was listening to someone I sort of admire in religion and, and the realm of sort of political punditry. And he was talking about why he never joined the military. And he kind of wished he did join the military. He said it because it's because it becomes a man to fight for his country. It becomes a man to stand up for what he believes in, to take his life and limb and to sacrifice it on the battlefield for his people. So what does that mean? It means it suits you. It's 
it's become if someone if you say if someone's wearing a, a nice outfit and you say, oh, that's quite becoming. It looks good on you. It's glorifying to you. It's aesthetically pleasing. It brings pleasure. It's edifying. And so what, uh, what Jesus is saying to John is that it becomes us to do this baptism. For you to baptize me, it becomes us because it's me humbling myself. The ultimate, I mean, Christ, his whole life was just an, a 30-year-long act of ultimate humility. And so he humbles himself even before John. And he says, do this now because it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. For all righteousness to be done, this act has to happen right now. And so John did it. And he baptized Christ. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Descending like a dove. In Genesis chapter 1, when it says, God hovered over the face of the waters... The word is the same. It's fluttered over the face of the waters. This image of the spirit of God as a dove is an ancient image. And we have it here that the spirit of God descends like a dove fluttering and lighting upon Christ and low a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we return to John knowing now that John the Baptist Baptized Jesus Christ to fulfill all righteousness. Okay. And we're going to keep learning a little bit about John the Baptist throughout the book of John. He comes up again and again. Um, I wasn't sure if we should just do this whole message just about John the Baptist. But my thinking is that we're going to have to return to him even in the next, even later in this chapter. So really, I wanted to do a larger section of scripture. I wanted to get into everyone's head kind of the context so you'll understand when we keep returning to him what his significance is in the broader narrative of scripture. So this is now we're on verse seven. So this is verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Okay. Remember what I said at the beginning, you've got light, you've got witness, you've got reception and you've got glory, right? The light is the means by which we behold the means by which we see the witness is the act of beholding, right? So God, so John was sent by God prior to Christ to make way the way straight to call people to repent and to bear witness to that light. The same came for a witness, bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The light, which lighteth again, Romans one, the creature knows the creator, but suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. The creature knows the creator, but suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Even in the unbeliever, what is, what is, again, what does the man say? He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We all have cert- the song we just sang, I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. In the believer, we're prone to wander, we're prone to unbelief. We beg for belief. The unbeliever is just 
taking it a step further where they, they do not surrender. They will not. They are, their heart has been hardened, and they just will not accept, so they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Like holding a beach ball under the water, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know you cannot deny the evidence, which is, I mean, it's literally infinite, right? Everything that exists is either direct or indirect evidence of God, right? So when people say there's no evidence for God, they're just... They're just putting words together in a way that's completely absurd and completely detached from reality because every molecule that exists is evidence of God. It is the footprint on the beach. It is the smoking gun. It is whatever you want to call it. It is all evidence of God. There's nothing that is not evidence of God. the, The fact of the atheist denying the existence of God is itself evidence of God. He is the child sitting on his father's lap, slapping his father in the face, could not even reach that high if not for the father holding him up. He came into the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. It says that you can't be a prophet in your own land. And Christ, when he preached in Nazareth, was driven out almost immediately. And this makes me feel deeply suspect of what I'm doing. Like, why aren't you all driving me out of here? I grew up in this town, right? Like, if I, I feel like I must be doing something wrong that you are all so accepting of what we're doing here. Um, <laughs> but he came into his own, and his own received him not. And that's what it means to be ultimate. That's what it means to be ideal. To be ideal and to be perfect is to be rejected by the imperfect. The only way the imperfect could come to accept this perfect ideal is to, for that perfect ideal to compel him by means of his divine grace and mercy and agency. The complete control over your heartstrings to draw you to the inescapable conclusion of his ultimacy and his supremacy and his Pre-existence, which is what John, this entire book, is about. His pre-existence, his being here in the beginning with the Father. <clears throat> he came unto his own, but his own received his not. And then these next two verses are the two verses that I think everyone here will love deeply. I mean, if, if, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, but I repeat myself, and you love the sovereign doctrines of grace, the, the, the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, these two verses are just so deep. But as many as received him. Okay. Descriptive statement. This is going to be, this is challenging for some people. I know there are, there are statements that are called descriptive or normative. Okay. What that means, it's a statement of fact about reality. It doesn't imply any kind of causation, right? So the pew is brown. I'm not implying anything about the causation of how the pew became brown. It's simply a mere matter of fact. The pew is brown. The pew is brown. And as many as people of people that sit in the brown pew, X, Y, like, then something happens, right? I'm not going to say that all people that sit in pews are saved. But as many as received him, to them he gave he power to become the sons of God. So it's not saying because they received him. It's saying those that received him. Right? It's like I'm sitting in an inner tube on a lake and, and the sun is shining down on me. I'm receiving that sunshine, but I'm not doing anything. I'm not causing any. There's no causal relationship between me personally, like deciding that I'm going to accept the sun. I'm going to get that vitamin D, right? I have no, like, 
personal agency of my own, I'm going to get that vitamin D. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. Sons of God, that in him we are sons of God. It's like the, the most, we all want to be called good and faithful servant, but how much greater is it that he calls us sons? We're not just servants, we are sons adopted into this family. Which were born not of blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, as clear as can be. It has nothing to do with our personal will, our desire. It has nothing to do with the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, our personal desires, our personal agency, our independent choice, our free will, whatever you want to call it. It's not me choosing anything. It is God which chooseth us, which were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. This is the glory. The glory of the only begotten father. The word is the glory. The light is the glory. The life is the glory. I look at all of you today. And I am told by scripture. That the light resides within you. That it is the life of all men. But in particular, the elect who don't try to hide that light, who don't put it under a blanket, don't put it under a basket, but they show up and they want to hear what God has to say to them. And so they they show up and it's God drawing them here together. And I get to look at you now. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole number of sermons about love and charity and what it means for Christians to love one another. And it's, yeah, what is it? It means to wish the best for the other, right? It means to look at someone and to objectively, not just like, oh, I want what you want for yourself or, oh, I want what I want for you. It's I want what God wants for you. That's what love is. Love is wanting what God wants for you. So I want... I want you to be saved. I want you to go to heaven. I want you to believe. I want you to know God and glorify him forever. And and that's the only Christian love I get in my life. But that's all the Christian love that I need. And it's all the Christian love anyone needs. And it's the same Christian love that we're all sharing. Because it's all the image of God that resides within you. Looking at the image of God that resides in the other. And saying, I just want the best for you. And not just the best in my own personal You know, my worldly interpretation of that or the best, like what I personally think is right. But I want the best that God wants for you, the objectively right, the perfect thing for you, the image of God that is you. I'm just I'm honored that I get to come up here and tell you that I hope I hope, you know, you can be get everything right. You can have all the doctrines correct. You can know in your head things, right? But without love, it's all, it's just clanging symbols. It's just noise. And I really want you to know that when we see each other in this way, that we're made in the image of God, that we're perfect, 
We're made, we are his sons and his daughters. We're all one family. It's the real family. The real family is the family of God. He made a tribe, he made a tribe of people just to demonstrate this. He took a whole tribe, a family of people. And he said, we're going to make you the chosen people. And you're going to reject me over and over and over again, just so that I can bring the whole entirety of mankind into this equation so that I can pick the people who will believe and they will be my family. And that's my choice as God. The glory goes to him. The choice was his. The decision was his. The word is his. And we are just beneficiaries of it. We're just getting this beautiful, beautiful gift. The word was made flesh. The word, the word which God spoke, which is the means by which he created all existence, became flesh. It became like man. It became man. It dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. We witnessed that light. Full of grace and truth, full of unmerited favor, truth, the one truth, the objective truth. There is no your truth or my truth. There's no relativism. It's just the truth. John bear witness of him and cried, saying, this is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace, his grace For its own sake. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law is good. The law teaches us so many things. It teaches us our own inability to live up to that law. But grace and truth, grace by which we're saved and truth that we can look at that salvation and understand it and understand it and comprehend the basic fact of reality that we are his sons. That came by Jesus Christ. And no man has seen God at any time. No man living has seen, even Moses saw the backside, only the backside of God. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, which means like in his heart, right? So the son, which is in the heart of the father, he declares God. And that's how we know God. And that's how we can glorify him forever. And John is telling us Christ is God. Glorify him forever. Sons and daughters of the most high kings and priests with God under the king of all kings and the Lord of all Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you so much for this time. Lord, I'm humbled. And I just pray that we would all meditate on these Glorious truths, Lord, this impossibly deep, impossibly profound vision, Lord, of your son, which is the light and life of all men. Lord, that we would just be eternally grateful for it, Lord, and that we would repent from our sins as John told us to repent, Lord. Father, we ask for your help in these things, Lord. We confess that we're not able to do it on our own, but we... We affirm that our sins have been forgiven by your sons working on the cross, Lord. And we just pray that you would help us to repent from our sins, Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
quickly cut to the chase here. There are so many wonderful things I know we're going to get to enjoy both this afternoon and um, together as the day goes on. But the first and foremost, the thing that caused us to come together is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love how he was concentrating on a number of elements of who Jesus is, who he is declared to be, the Son of God there, but also who he is to all of us. Is the reason you are all here this morning, whether you're here with a relative because of the holiday or whether you're here because you truly do love and fear him. I hope that all of you are blessed when you leave this place. Jesus is many things, but he is. He's not less than our savior. He's not less than, as Elder Chuck Smith said in his prayer, king. He is king, but he's not less than king. He's also much more than king. In Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm to most people, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with evil, with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. says, the Lord is my shepherd. Wording there is very important. It's talking about the Lord himself. And it finishes saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's talking about a very specific person who is going to be and who is, from then on till now, our shepherd talks about, in times of trouble, him still taking care of us. talks about, in times of prosperity, him giving us that prosperity, that we can lie down in green pastures. Now, if you've never been a sheep, you might not necessarily fully appreciate what it's like to be a sheep who is very scared, easily frightened, and who is completely um, underpowered for the wild world. Right? What can a sheep do if a wolf or a lion or a bear comes along? Nothing. Right? They can run and hope that there is someone else that is slower than them or that the uh, attacking creature's appetite runs out before it reaches them. But here, they're given to lie down in green pastures and also to be beside still waters, to be given places of peace in a world far more violent than that sheep was, was seemingly designed for. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Beloved, there will be dark nights and dark days in this world. We have to remember that there is someone who is watching over us. And that someone, of course, is the Lord. For thou art with me. We don't not fear evil. We don't not fear death because we're somehow overwhelmingly able to get it. Because we understand from a philosophical standpoint. Because we have inner strength. Or because of our experiences. Because we've seen so much and we get so much. The only reason why we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's because he is with us. Right. And if we don't have him with us, everything else will be nothing but bravado, idle words, idle thoughts, that will find a dark end. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, we maybe haven't necessarily been dealing with the kind of enemies that David had, right? People that would gladly kill us immediately if they had the opportunity. We're not dealing with the kind of political force and Difficulty. We're not dealing with the kind of temptations maybe that David had. But certainly, everything we struggle with is similar to it. 
he was a man like us, with passions like us, and troubles like us. We might find enemies at work or in different fields of our lives. And yet he says here that no matter where we are, in the worst kind of circumstances we can be in, he anoints his head with oil and his cup runs over. Oil, of course, would have been kind of like um, hair conditioner and lotion and cleaner all in one. We're more synthetic now than they were then. There are certain advantages to that, certainly. Soaps have been a great advantage to mankind. But what oil did would have been a lot of those things like that. It's like taking a clean, full, complete shower after a fashion. Oil meant much more than that, and I don't have time to get into it now. But the point is that they were made more lovely, more prepared, more glad in a place where they were surrounded by their enemies because he was with them. And because of all that and all those experiences, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May those two things reign in our hearts. I want to unfold more of this here. Help us understand exactly what this is a foreshadow of. But may you first remember those times and seasons when God has been those things for you. When he has been with you. When he has been a comfort to you. If you have not yet known those times, beloved, I pray that you see them soon. And I don't mean to say that I hope that you go through trials, but I hope that you go through times when he is with you and you see it. And that you might be able to say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not as an abstract thought, but because you've seen it and you know. That's what David's saying here. He's concluding at the end of all these thoughts. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. He sees, he tasted that the Lord is good. And he knows now. And what is his conclusion? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. This is later spoken of again in the prophets. In Ezekiel, just a quick verse here. It says, God, speaking of his people, I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they all lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. Again, a picture of prosperity, of peace. And we do live in such wonderful times. We really do. When you consider the way that food is able to quickly travel all across the world to our tables, the wide variety that we can enjoy now, after a fashion, we really do live in times like what's being described there. And the heritage that we have inherited is not something to lightly cast aside. When we look back at so many things that have been given to us, we should be glad. And I know that there is, um, sadly, much of a view of the world that is not godlike, a view of uh, control, a view of uh, loss, a view of everything that we have running out. But God is a God of abundance. And our Jesus is a Jesus who has given and given and given. The only time God ever took a rest was so that you would know to rest. He did it to give you an example. And since then, to this very day, after that seventh day when he rested, so that we would have this day to see, since then, he has never stopped shining his sun on the just and the unjust, sending rain to the just and the unjust, doing work nonstop, pouring out his abundance of life on us, on earth. Now tell us what kind of God he is and what kind of care he has. But his son whom he sent, and as I said, I'm going to just jump real quick into John chapter 10 here. In John chapter 10, uh, we'll see a bit of how good he is. In the end of John chapter 9, the problem with, with all the, the breaks in the gospel of John is it, there's almost no good point to stop a chapter in most of them. Because so many things keep happening back to back to back. But Jesus had just healed a man who had been born blind. Now, that never happened before. It would be wonderful if technology advances to the point where we can somehow connect to the mind and and share vision with people who can't see. But 
maybe that would be good, and maybe in the hands of man that would be bad, and maybe that will never happen. But till now, man who was born blind was never given sight until Jesus here did it. And when he did it, there was a lot of confusion. And Danny was talking about the leaders of the temple. Now, they were given the oracles of God, and they were commanded, the disciples were commanded to obey them after a fashion. And yet, they didn't understand. They disobeyed the signs that were being sent by Jesus' healing. And they even eventually cast this man out of the church. Now, Jesus didn't reveal himself to this man when he healed him. He sent him another place to finish the healing process, and he washed his eyes off in a river. He had never seen Jesus. So when he finally sees Jesus, he didn't realize it was him. So it says they cast him out, and then Jesus found him. And he didn't know who he was looking at. And the first thing Jesus says is, do you, dost thou believe on the Son of God? Now just for those who maybe have heard the world people say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, just hear this. He says, he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Here he says, he brought up the question, he says, he is the Son of God. So we have Jesus being the Savior, being God incarnate, as Danny was saying. Jesus revealing here that he is the Son of God. And as you go through the Gospel of John, you hear John uh, taking witness of many times when Jesus says who he is. But he'll go on to say he is something else as well. Now remember, it says, the Lord is our shepherd. Right? Now as John chapter 10 starts, Jesus is answering those Pharisees who didn't understand didn't get what had happened, didn't understand what it meant to be blind, didn't, what it, what, didn't understand how blindness, true spiritual blindness, was the affliction of all men. And in answer to them, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Showing a picture of a particular shepherd, a careful shepherd, and a shepherd that is identified. The porter opened to him. Now, Jesus is giving an allegory, and I don't have time to get into every part and piece here, but suffice it to say that the porter obviously is the father. The father, whose these people are, it says both before this and after this that all that Jesus was given, he would lose none. And it said who he got all of his sheep from. It says he got them all from the father. The father gave him every one of the sheep he had, and he would lose not a single one. And so here he's saying that he is the shepherd. He goes on, he says, And when he put forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now when you see a picture of shepherds, especially in uh, Western world, in America, often the shepherds are kind of pushing the sheep, right? But at this time, what's being described, and what you will still see in in, um, some of the eastern parts of the world, is the shepherds will lead the sheep. They will go, and if the sheep don't follow, it's on them. If they weren't paying attention to their shepherd's voice or where their shepherd was, the shepherd would go and find them, but he would make sure they understood that what they did was wrong. That goes back to <coughs> Psalm 23, where he says, Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We have a song, 224, in this hymnal um, that I don't think we'll be able to sing today, but that talks about this. It talks, the end, third verse ends talking about kissing the rod. Because a sheep that goes astray is also loved by being beaten back into the sheepfold. Why is that? Because the alternative is significantly more painful. And sheep are so dumb that sometimes the only thing they can recognize 
is the exact thing they would have gotten had they continued down their path, but in a smaller dose, right? Better to be beaten by the rod than to be eaten by a lion or a wolf, right? And so it is that we recognize that God's care for us is real. But more than that, we don't just know his rod. We don't just happen to be comforted by his staff, but we are comforted by knowing his voice. That's the main thing I want you to go away from as you leave here. It says, and a stranger will they not follow, but will flee him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Beloved, there is one voice that has tied together every believer from the dawn of time, from the very beginning, from Abel's good sacrifice and <clears throat> what one might hope might have been Adam's uh, repentance if it happened, we don't know, from the love of God that was, that was given by Enoch in those early days and Seth to even this very day. It is the same voice that resonates in the hearts of his believers that are known by him and that are repeated by them. And that we know not the voice of strangers. It says, this parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not the things which he spoke unto them. He makes it clear here. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, this isn't talking about every single individual who did good for the people. It didn't talk about, it's not talking about every individual who were serving. It was talking about anybody who tried to be Jesus. Anyone who ever came claiming to be the Messiah, the answer for our sins and for all the troubles that have troubled mankind from the beginning. And who, for that answer of the great separation between man and God, the need for all those sacrifices and things that had to die and eventually culminating in that one death, in Jesus' death. There was only one person who could ever fill that. There was only one person who could ever teach us. It says of of him, it says, I am the door for by me. If any man shall enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out to find pasture. Beloved, wherever he is, there is good things. When the sheep go out with him, they go out into a dangerous world, but they are with one that is far more dangerous. He has power over food. He has fed 10,000 in the desert with no one. He has power over sight. He can make blind. He can make to see. He has the keys of death and hell in his hands. He also holds eternal life and heaven. He has all power. There is nothing dangerous to him. So when we go out into a wild and dangerous world, there is nothing more scary than him that we can come across. He is also gentle and tender to us. His voice is one that we know and we hear. We hear it in the quiet of the night and we are not frightened. We're not afraid. We are comforted by him. More than that, though, he says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He comes with all that power, with all that ability to do one thing, to give life and to give it more abundantly. More abundantly meaning overflowing, more than you can handle. Life and life more abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. So one more passage to lead you to this morning. Beloved, as the good shepherd, he shows that he was that same Lord who way back in the beginning walked with Adam in the garden, who way back with David guided and guarded him, who now to this very day has, it says, he was given all power, all power. Jesus at different times would declare himself to be the I am. And we would have other times and places in scriptures where they would reveal that every knee will bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That name reserved specifically in all times past for only the Father himself. But now in these latter days, we see and our eyes are open that we are guided by a gentle and tender shepherd who is not just gentle and tender, but is also all powerful, filling all of heaven, filling everything. 
And finally, it says, of us in Revelation, this is the end of Revelation chapter 7. It says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Beloved, our Jesus came tenderly, as Danny referred to it, as a 33-year period of complete humility, the likes of which the world cannot imagine. And then he was humbled more by his death on the cross. He came as the Lord of glory, walked as we do, so that he might comfort you, having been tempted in every way you are. And now he leads us in everywhere, in every way we go. Let us trust him, for he is not just our Lord, but our good shepherd. Thank you for your good attention.